The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about national cutting-edge opportunities for ocean conservation. And my guest is David Helvarg. And David Helvarg is founder and Executive Director of Blue Frontier, an organization working for ocean and coastal conservation. David's an award-winning journalist. He has worked as a war correspondent in Northern Ireland and Central America. He's covered a range of issues from military science to the AIDS epidemic. And David has reported from every continent, including Antarctica. David Helbarg has written six books, including his latest called Saved by the Sea, Hope, Heartbreak and Wonder in the Blue World. And later in the show, David's going to talk to us about the book. David, how are you? Hello. Good, Rob. Good to talk to you again. It's been, well, days. Oh, since we're in Washington, yes. Um, so you're back in, in California. I hear you've got some uh, little pollution problem going on out there. Well, it's, it's not so little. It's at this latest estimate, 100,000 gallons of oil spilled off uh, a pipeline, a coastal pipeline in Santa Barbara, where they <laughs> pump the oil ashore from the offshore rigs and process it and then pump it down the coast where it's spilled, and at least 20,000 of that 100,000 gallons gone back into the water. Um, the pipe company has apologized for the inconvenience, they called it, of uh, polluting one of the most pristine uh, marine habitats on the West Coast. So... Uh, it's ironic, I guess, and that it was 1969 that a much larger 3 million gallon spill um, destroyed miles of coastline off Santa Barbara and uh, and the Union Oil spill in 69 combined with the Cuyahoga River catching fire in Cleveland that same, uh, that same year really sparked the modern environmental movement. And, uh, and the, the slogan right. really back started, in 69... Yeah. yeah, it was a year later after that, the images of, of oiled birds on the shore of Santa Barbara. And, and, of course, today we're seeing, again, pictures of people kind of stretching through the oil to try and rescue a totally oil-covered cormorant. Um, in 1969, the, the slogan that thousands of people adapted was, get oil out. And uh, it seems an even more appropriate slogan for today. I mean, Absolutely. When we, yeah, when we, when we protested... Uh, Oil spills in the 60s, 70s, it was really energy versus marine pollution. And today it's, it's also become a product liability issue. This, this product uses directed will overheat your planet and warm and acidify your seas. So, um, I mean, I think, terrible. you know, yeah, coal and 
all were good well, energy systems for the 16th and 19th century, but you know we're we're now in the 21st. It's time to move on. Plus, no no yeah. wind spill ever destroyed a beach or a bayou. Right. So, how are we going to reduce those oil spills? How does a nation do that? Um, we need to make you know have an actual energy plan. And President Obama, who talks about all of the above, that's not an energy plan. That's a blueprint for disaster. We uh, we already have a recent science report in Nature magazine that says in order to do, to avoid a complete climate catastrophe where temperatures rise over two degrees Celsius, we need to keep at least 80% of the known coal reserves and 30% of the known petroleum reserves in the ground or under the seabed. And so it's a crazy time for the administration to be promoting new exploration and drilling off the populated Atlantic coast and off the frontier waters of, of the Arctic that have only become accessible because of of loss of sea ice linked to fossil fuel fired climate change. It's uh it's it's the definition of insanity and yet it, it moves forward because we're so so much functioning as a uh, you know petro state like Russia or Saudi Arabia and, and, and so the the answer to how we get off fossil fuels and, and into a rapid transition to clean no carbon energy systems is is it's gonna take popular will. It's going to take uh, the engagement of uh, Americans, both coastal and inland. So engagement, that was really the focus of the, the Blue Vision Summit that we had gathered for in Washington. Um, yeah. I understand that, that the goal was, you know, working to protect and restore our public seas and the communities that depend on them through unified action. And so I think it was, uh, you know, feedback from people who participated. It was very effective in terms of actively advancing our, you know, coordination and strategy and power of uh, people who want to, you know, defend the blue in our red, white, and blue, people who, who understand that. I mean, it was hard to get there, but it was important. And people from all over the country, from 24 states uh, plus American Samoa, sort of, uh, made the sacrifice, you know, traveled to Washington on their own dime, found housing, uh, came came to the summit, and uh, and we did some, uh, I think, impressive uh, activities there. Absolutely. About how many people attended the conference, you think, the summit? Um, I think between the summit and the Peter Benchley Ocean Awards that followed, there were yeah. about 400. There were about 250, wow. 300 people who were engaged in the <laughs> the panels and plenaries uh, and activities around the summit itself. I mean, we, you know, including some real ocean champions who spoke to us from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who's also a past Peter Benchley Ocean Award winner, to uh, Paul Zuncuff, the commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, and Kathy Sullivan, the administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, Ayana uh, Johnson, who's a emerging scientist with the Wade Institute who spoke about initiatives to build uh, kind of citizen-initiated marine wilderness uh, in, in the Caribbean and elsewhere. And, you know, addressing a lot of the issues, and, and not just the issues, but looking at solutions for overfishing, for climate impacts along our shore, for plastic and other forms of pollution and uh, and, and, and there are threats in our polar regions. And, and, you know, with some very expert people from the, you know, city councilman in New York City who's 
community far rock away was wiped out in Sandy where people were left for three weeks without government aid and had to self-organize to uh, a representative of the Gulf Restoration Network who born and raised in Louisiana and, and, and describing the, the corruption that allows for the ongoing pollution and destruction of their wetlands, America's wetlands, they call them. Um, even a vice mayor of a small town in Florida who almost broke into tears when speaking of the threat that his little bit of paradise is facing from uh, uh, planned offshore drilling uh, in the waters off, off of Florida. So a lot of energy, a lot of passion. Um, like I say, everybody from, uh, you know, consumer activist Ralph Nader to uh, Prince Albert II of Monaco. Um, and, and a lot of it, for me, culminated on what we called Healthy Ocean Capitol Hill Day on Wednesday, May 13, when we had the largest citizen lobby for uh, ocean conservation in the history of the U.S. Yeah, that was impressive. You know, we this is our fifth you know, Blue Vision Summit, and that Tuesday afternoon at 6 o'clock when people gathered, you know, at the Carnegie Building to prepare to go up the hill, and uh, there were so many people in that room. I was really impressed by how far we've come in uh, five sessions, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there were, you know, just just so many people from so many states, from 24 states the next morning. We were greeted by... Uh, Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii and uh, four House members, from, including from New Mexico. I mean, our delegations included a large delegation from Colorado and people from Michigan and Vermont and uh, Arizona who understand that, in a sense, every state is a coastal state. Half the air we breathe is generated by uh, the algae in the ocean and, and the, the, you know, Ocean's a driver of climate and weather. The the rain we need in uh, our drought-stricken part of the country to grow our crops and, and you know fill our tables. It all comes out of, of that circulation of water that starts with our ocean. So we really we had a lot of meetings with, including direct meetings with nine senators and over twenty five members of the House and dozens of their staff folk all through the day. Really, to just say that oceans matter. And as I said later, that you know that we want them to restore them, our employees, the people we elect to office, to uh, respond to the popular will, restore the blue in our red, white, and blue. And and specifically, we're there to say we don't want any uh, acoustic uh, testing or oil drilling off our coast, either off uh, the Atlantic coast or in the frontier Arctic waters of of northern Alaska. And and also we. Uh, we lobbied for passage of uh, what they call IEU, illegal, unreported, and unregulated uh, fishing, a, a law to follow up. Two years ago, we, we asked them, the Senate, to pass a, pass a series of treaties against pirate fishing, and they actually unanimously passed, uh, ratified six treaties. But it's two years later, and the legislation hasn't passed. And I think part of it was just, being there, our presence reminded people and informed people that, gee, there actually is a common sense bipartisan bill that could be passed in this Congress that would, you know, prevent illegally caught fish and, and not just illegally caught fish, but fish caught with the use of slave labor and, uh, and at an economic uh, disadvantage to American fishermen, that, that that can be stopped and that we have laws that are ready to be passed if uh, if we just you know, 
make make the effort, and that was part of the day is to <laughs> make that effort. And in fact, we we're promoting a, a bill on the Hill side, on the House side, House of Representatives, and. At the end of the, our day, uh, Senator Murkowski of Alaska introduced the Senate legislation to match the House legislation because you need bills on both sides to go into committee and to, and to get voted by both houses. And this may happen. You know, we may just reach the point where we start to turn the tide on some of these really egregious, uh, egregious um, activities, pirate activities that just help it help destroy the biomass of, of the planet and and you know it's uh, it's interesting just yeah that's right weeks. that's really good that you know we're getting people together and as you said at the beginning that you know we're becoming we're a much more ocean literate nation with these people it's no longer a coastal state problem it's as you said people from Colorado and a number of central states are totally savvy to how we're doing this you know, the minority leader for the House Natural Resources from Arizona, totally savvy on the stuff on ocean. And then, as you were saying, the illegal fishing, un- unregulated and uh, the other U word, unreported, this is all international fishing. So we have to be clear that this is not uh, going on in American, you know, waters, but in the other waters, uh, it's a real problem. And uh, as you were briefing us to go up in the hill, that... Uh, you know, one out of five imported fish or 20% of the imported seafood is illegally unregulated and unreported catches that uh, is, is bad for everybody except for the pirates, I suppose. Right. Um, and Daniel Pauly, Dr. Daniel Pauly, who is one of our, yeah. our eventually winners this year, who's, you know, really a leading scientist and, and uh, innovator on understanding and tracking overfishing at a global level. He, he, he told me that in the U.S., we're, we're beginning to rebuild stocks because we've done reforms, but we're still getting 80% of our fish is imported. And if we don't extend those reforms globally and fight the piracy and the industrial fishing that's decimating the ocean, it doesn't matter. You can't have fisheries. It's an ocean that doesn't recognize borders, and you can't, you can't have reforms just in the developed world. You have to have global reforms. And which which benefits uh, everybody, particularly the billion people, mostly in the developed world, who are dependent on uh, on fish for uh, their main source of protein. And so, it's not just a uh, an issue of maintaining the ocean's biodiversity, which is important, but also it's a it's a food security and a national security issue. And of course, it really does. That's right. It benefits I, the nation here because of um, you know that. As, you, as Dr. Polly pointed out, so much fish is being brought in. And, you know, New Bedford has the largest, most amount of fish of any city in America, port. And, uh, you know, they're, what they're doing is they're processing it, and then they ship it to Mexico and unload it without even coming into America and load up with uh, citrus products, which they bring back to New Bedford and process and ship to Canada. So the whole, you know, North American, you know, consumption of fish is, is driven, is you know, really impacted by this illegal fishing. And obviously to uh, cut out the uh, illegal part is an important thing to do for, uh, you know, our fishermen here. And, yeah, and just the whole point of enjoying seafood is to be able to eat it guilt-free and not worry about, you know, threatening a species and stuff. Sure, I mean, just a month before we went up on the hill, a Russian trawler hauling an 80-ton net full of pollock in in the... uh, you know, in the North Pacific, sank, and 57 
were killed and 13 missing, mm. and 16 of those killed were Burmese that, that the Russian captain had picked up in Korea before heading up to the boundary line between the U.S. and Russian fishing waters. And of course, the next day, 300 Burmese slaves were freed on an Indonesian island where they had been uh, used as slaves on, on uh, Thai pirate fishing boats. And so oh my you see why, why those Burmese were on the Russian trawl. And you see this, you know, the boundaries between industrial overfishing and human trafficking and organized crime are really narrowing down. And, you know, when, when AP yeah. reported on the, uh, the Thai pirates using Burmese uh, slave labor, they tracked that fish to a Thai processor and found that the frozen product ended up on the shelves of Walmart and their freezer units. So, so we're really, you know, what, what we have to do is make traceability and transparency and fair practices the core of, of our policies and, and the way we make policies, we make law. So, you know, it's what we try and do. We try and be active citizens. And, and I, I spoke just yesterday to a graduating class of young marine scientists and, and told them that, you know, if we can link you know, our science and our, and our citizenship, if we can take the best available science on the state of our blue planet and engage citizens in, in the solutions, you know, we're, it's, you know, we have these cascading disasters of overfishing, of pollution, of loss of habitat, of fossil fuel-fired climate disruption, and yet, and yet we know what the solutions are. It's frustrating. The solutions are there. If you stop killing fish, they tend to grow back. If you don't, produce 100 million tons of uh, throwaway plastic every year, you're not going to have this pulse of plastic pollution in the ocean that acts as a toxic sponge uh, on the food web and, and chokes turtles and kills seabirds. Um, you know, we know what the solutions are, and what we're trying to do, what we try and do with things like the Blue Vision Summit is is build, the, uh, build up the grassroots, or what I call seaweed uh, movement that can effectively turn the tide for us. Yeah, the seaweed rebellion is growing, and as you said, it's a two-edged sword. We're doing a lot with uh, grassroots and people taking actions onto themselves, just incremental ones adding up. And the flip side is getting Congress, getting government to regulate properly, because there's incredible overfishing by, off of West Africa by the Chinese, hundreds of ships out there. And, of course, the poor West Africans can't do anything about it because they got their own problems. And uh, so we need you know, international law to step in where the, the local people step off and, and not to do stuff. Uh, so she, uh, bravo for the Blue Vision Summit of bringing together, you know, attention to the, the national uh, legislators on what they can do. And it wasn't a simple message. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we'll, we'll, David will describe some of the other messages that were brought to Congress, some of the other bills that uh, give us hope for healthier oceans. And, and the Peter Benchley Ocean Awards. Uh, we'll talk about that too. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All together now, all together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back talking with David Helbard about the Blue Vision Summit that was recently held in Washington. Uh, David, how can people learn more about your organization, Blue Frontier? Oh, just go to our website, uh, www.bluefront.org, and, um, you know, there's all the contacts there. We even have a uh, Blue Movement directory on our site that, that lists some 1,400 uh, seaweed groups, you know, citizen activists and agencies and others who are working for ocean conservation in the U.S. But uh, that and lots of news and a regular, you know, newsletter uh, that you can sign up for at bluefront.org. And if they want to write to you, can they get through to you on the website? Absolutely. Uh, just just yeah. the hell of our, get H-E-L-V-A-R-G at bluefront.org. Well, I encourage people, you know, if they have insights on the stuff we're talking about today um, or things to share, to please, you know, drop me or, or David a, an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, David, you were saying that when I was talking about the uh, 
um, fishing off of West Africa that, that you had a, a lead into the Venti Awards or something? Yes, one of, uh, in 2013, we, uh, well, the Peter Benchler Awards, just for a little background, um, everybody sort of knows of Peter Benchler as the author of Jaws and remembers the movie that was made from it. But few people understand that he was a marine conservationist and spent most of his life uh, defending sharks and their habitat. And in fact, he was a keynote speaker at our first Blue Vision Summit back in 2004. So uh, after he passed over the bar, after he died, I contacted Wendy, his widow, and, and asked if we could make our awards and rename them in his honor, which he agreed. And so we co-founded the Peter Benchley Awards, which have now really become the, uh, you know, world's leading awards for ocean conservation solutions across a, a range of societal, society and societal sectors from science to national stewardship. And in, in 2013, in fact, we gave uh, our national stewardship award to President Mackie Saul of Senegal, who had just been elected. Uh, it had been a controversy in that the former president had tried to break the Constitution. Students had gone in the streets and finally as a leader of the opposition. He'd been democratically elected, and one of his first acts as president was to rescind permits to foreign fishing fleets um, that were overexploiting the waters of his nation's 200-mile exclusive economic zone. And within six months, the local domestic uh, fishing families saw incredible booms in their fisheries. And, and so pulling those 26 permits uh, <laughs> had significance and really was a model of how West Africa can protect its uh, fishery resources for its own people. He then began working with Greenpeace to develop a uh, domestic uh, sustainable fishery, um, the best practices, and and the award itself got a lot of coverage in Senegal and West Africa. It helped him resist a lot of pressure from the EU and other places that wanted him to start selling licenses again, and, and the following year he again refused to, and again the the abundance of the ocean, the resiliency is, is showing through. And and so what, you know, what we do with the uh, Peter Benchley Award is really look across the nation and around the world to, to find the people who are scaling up the solutions uh, more rapidly than the problems. That's our aim, really. And, uh, you know, we have a number of categories from national stewardship to policy to excellence in science and media and exploration and a youth award and an annual Hero of the Seas Award that that highlights uh, grassroots activity, but uh, this this year, 2015, I think the uh, Bench Awards were were particularly exceptional as they were held in Washington D.C. Um, our National Stewardship Award went to uh, Prince Albert II of Monaco, who's been very engaged in uh, support of ocean efforts. He helped get. Uh, the Oceans is named as part of the Millennial Program at the United Nations to focus on uh, changes in this century, and he's been active on uh, promoting protection of the high seas, which still kind of functions as a Wild West, you know, uh, anarchy, you know, beyond these 200-mile zones, uh, which is almost half the world that's that's very uncontrolled and, and out of control. And he's also been funding... Uh, symposiums to bring leading scientists together around the world to talk about ocean acidification and try and understand the climate impacts on the ocean of increased carbon and, and how that creates carbonic acid, which shifts the peak. You know, we're changing the basic chemistry of the ocean is what's happening. So, um, mm. so he was, uh, 
He was our national. He was there for to re- receive his award. Uh, John Kerry, Secretary of State, unfortunately, was in Russia. He sent his regrets, but uh, but his presenter was was his longtime friend and colleague, Senator um, Ed Markey Ed Markey Ed, Ed of of Massachusetts, who I'm sure you know well. Uh, he's a past oh, yeah. uh, past policy winner himself of a bench award, and and it was interesting. He got up there and he started speaking of the terrible winter you had in Boston with 110 inches of snow and comparing it to one of the lowest snowfalls in history up in Alaska where they actually actually had to create uh, generate uh, you know artificial snow for the Iditarod uh yeah, they brought in snow for the Iditarod can you believe it <laughs> and and, yeah. he, and and unlike the media which loves to you know to do stories about extreme weather but not explain them he explained the link to uh What's happening with um, the loss of sea ice in the Arctic and how climate change is, is impacting the jet stream and, and changing weather patterns? And uh, he also talked about warming oceans. He said that you know lobsters and uh, and cod are voting with their fins and their claws, moving north to colder water. So he was he was a good stand-in for uh, Secretary Kerry, who of course himself has been you know between wars and diplomatic. Uh, crisis has, has been a strong advocate for action on illegal pirate fishing. He's worked with other nations to create and, and encourage the president who expanded our marine monuments by over ha- you know half a million square miles, to, uh, essentially creating national parks in the sea where there's no fishing or drilling or dumping. And, and these are some of our great pristine waters that carry health, uh, excellence in science. I mentioned earlier, Daniel Pauley, presented by Jeremy Jackson, our our media award this year went to The Economist, which is not only doing great coverage of our ocean issues, but also holding its own ocean summits to try and focus on the benefits of a blue economy, the benefits of a healthy ocean. Um, exploration we gave to Nainoa Thompson of Hawaii, who, uh, who who's used the ancient methods of wayfinding across the ocean to lead a Polynesian cultural revival with the, the building of the Hokuleo, which was a traditional Polynesian voyage and craft and learning from one of the last wayfarers in, uh, in Micronesia, learning the skills to navigate by starlight and by, by sea state and has, has, you know, been doing this for a generation now. And, and his award was presented by one of his fans, Senator Brian Schatz of, uh, of Hawaii, who's one of three ocean heroes, uh, in the Senate now. The youth award went to Shark Girl. Well, wait, wait. Let's let, let's stop a minute for um, right. You know, Naomi Thompson. It's just remarkable. You know, in the seventies, the last person who had learned from the elders how to navigate by stars and watching the sea, and not using any equipment whatsoever. You know, managed to teach a bunch of people, including uh, or a few people, a handful, including uh, Naomi Thompson and. Uh, it's just remarkable that what was about to be lost was found, and, and Naomi's known locally for lying outside all night just so we can see where the stars rise and where they, you know, how they move across the sky because um, that's how they, they know when they're near Hawaii, when a certain star at midnight reaches a certain height, if it's the right height, then you know you've got to turn left or right to go to Hawaii. You know, you're at the right latitude. And it's just remarkable from what was once one person has become a collection of people so that there are new navigators who are learning this trick, or not this trade, this skill. And uh, 
they they are going to be handed control of the boat to when it gets it's sailing around the world, but when it enters the Pacific again, the old timers are going to sit back and let the young kids um, use the old methods to try to pinpoint those islands in the Pacific, and that's a big ocean. So it's just it's, a phenomenal thing. It's really good that you guys are recognizing that. And I think you know that 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 link between indigenous knowledge and 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 scientific understanding is is vital, and it was important to bring him to D.C. because. You know, when there's sort of a, unfortunately, within Congress and the D.C. culture, there's sort of a, a disregard both for indigenous rights and for science. And I think that, uh, yeah. you know, these are the kind of people who, who are pathfinders not only across our oceans, but, but in terms of leading our culture maybe back to a a, a saner perspective that, that recognizes that... Uh, that we're part of nature and not apart from it, and that uh, as, as Tim Worth, who was also there, a former senator who was also at the uh, awards dinner, has pointed out, our you know our in- economy is a fully owned subsidiary of our environment, and when we when we degrade the ocean and, and our blue planet, we eliminate the you know the essentials of our own survival. Um, and we had three other winners this year. Uh, our Benchley Youth Award, Christopher Benchley Youth Award, went to Madison Pip Stewart, who's also known as Shark Girl. She uh, started swimming with sharks in her home waters of Australia when she was 12 and convinced her parents to homeschool her at 14 so she could become pretty much a full-time uh, filmmaker and, and advocate diving with tiger sharks. And when when the new government in Australia started uh, netting uh sharks off their beaches and killing them. She's been a, a outspoken voice against that and the sale of shark fins and shark meat. Not only in Australia, she's gone global. She's now 21. And in her speech, she pointed out that when government uh, makes immoral choices and resistance is a, a natural call, it certainly called to her. And in a different way to our, our hero of the seas this year, where Todd Miller, who native North Carolinian... Well, before you leave Pip, you know, yeah. it's remarkable that her family were refugees from Lebanon and, you know, the Pips come around from, from the whole Lebanon scene to being a great, you know, shark conservationist. It's the interconnections of people, just like the interconnections of ocean ecology, are just astounding. And I, I've, I've done, like, uh, you know, trainings for, for uh, journalists, for colleagues around the world in the past, and, and it's always found that, uh, you know, I do trainings for environmental journalism and, and found that there's, you know, this, uh, including uh, Mahmoud, who is a uh, Lebanese journalist and others who, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It, it's kind of too, um, I, I found traveling around the world that, that democracy is almost a precursor for environmental reforms. I mean, I talked to a uh, reporter yeah. in Egypt who reported on the U.S. and Egyptian navies dropping depth charges on coral reefs, and he was brought in by the naval intelligence, interrogated for six hours, and let go. And I asked him if he would do that kind of reporting again. He said, "Of, of course I would. I was telling the truth. They, you know, and as long as you're telling, you know, truth to power, um, you generate power. The, uh, the um, in Poland and in uh, South Korea, the sort of democratic uprising started with uh, environmental protests." Because this is something, you know, the air we breathe, the water we we uh, use for uh, 
you know, other fresh Our water or whether, it's, yeah. whether it's fresh, salty or brackish, it's essential to life. And, uh, and, and, and so this is, uh, you know, these, these deep connections between, um, issues of, of, uh, development and democracy and the environment can't be denied. Uh, we, we talk about the triple line of the environment, the economy and equity, um, fairness is essential. And that's, uh, our, our other final winners of, of this year's awards are here as the seas were Todd Miller, who's, uh, Native North Carolinian who founded the North Carolina Coastal Federation and Dana Beach, Native of South Carolina, who uh, uh, also many years ago created the uh, South Carolina Coastal Conservation League, which between them, people don't realize there's like over a million acres of, of coastal wetlands in, uh, in South Carolina that have been protected. The alarms go off. It's like Swamp Fox uh, who is a native of yeah. South Carolina. In fact, um, our, our policy winner, there's an odd connection I didn't get to talk about at the, um, at, at the awards, but John Kerry years ago, I heard him talk about how much we owe the wetlands and that, uh, and that uh, Francis Marion, the swamp fox, beat the British by retreating into the wetlands of South Carolina. Well, there's actually today a... Uh, hundreds of thousands of acres in the Francis Marion wetlands that uh, Dana Beach of the um, of the, the Coastal Conservation League helped protect, and of course, since Disney also did a program on swamp fox, I remember as a kid like playing in the swamps behind my elementary school where we all played swamp fox, and I know, did the same thing. Muskets. My cousin, and yeah. this is a great segue uh, to getting into your book. But uh, so but, uh, why don't we take a so, short break and then. We'll, then we'll come back and talk some more about, um, you know, hope and heartbreak and wonder in the blue world. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
you'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with David Helbard of Blue Frontier. And uh, we've been talking about the fifth Blue Vision Summit in Washington, D.C., when there were 160 Hill meetings and over 300 people participating in the summit, or close to 400. Um, and, and then you were just talking about, um, well, somehow we got to Francis Marion. I forget the connection there, Dave. Help right, the, the connection was our, our final, uh, yeah, we had our... Eighth annual Peabody oh. Ocean Awards, and our heroes of the sea were Todd Miller of North Carolina, Dana Beach of South Carolina, and of course, it's hard to talk about protecting the wetlands of South Carolina without talking about swamp fox. But between those two, they've protected over a million acres, and they're restoring billions of oysters. And of course, it's all threatened by you know the potential offshore oil that that is being promoted now as some kind of energy answer to the wrong question. But um, well, that was one of the issues on the Hill. Was we went to every 160 meetings, 160 legislators heard about we don't want drilling in the Atlantic Ocean or the Arctic waters off of Alaska. Yeah, and actually, 163 was, counting American Samoa, and of course, a lot of oh, them, like our that. California, our California folks, are very with us. It's funny. The head of the Alabama delegation said she hated that that we Californians sort of have a love fest with our delegation who, uh, you know, overwhelmingly are, you know, we yeah. back in the 1980s made a decision as a, as a population not to allow drilling uh, off California to leave the oil under the seabed. And now the challenge is to, uh, to make the same decision for the Atlantic coast and for the frontier waters of the Arctic. But, uh, you yes. know, I'm talking South Carolina, you talk... Uh, swamp fox, and, and it's funny you were saying that you know you also played this swamp fox as a kid because uh, it was on TV, and that's sort of a lot of my early formation. I mean, chapter one in my book is titled Swamp Fox because it was these sort of early media influences that took us into the wetlands after school to play. Um, another early influence was Sea Hunt, where Lloyd Bridges played underwater investigator uh, Mike Nelson, and you know, years later, I became both a diver and a, and a private investigator, and and that influence sort of lingered through uh, through not only my lifetime but a whole generation of uh, ocean scientists and explorers who who were watching this black and white half hour special uh, 
the first images we had of, of diving into the ocean, even even before Jacques Cousteau's special started appearing on uh, later in the 1960s, and and then we. Well, uh, what's interesting in your book, though, is that you know you're turned on early to oceans, and yet you know you have to go through a lot of trials and tribulations until you find yourself on a California shore. Yeah, it was, um, you know, as a child, of course, I thought I'd be a frogman and grow up and fight for American dolphins. And when I was a little older, I thought I'd be an oceanographer. And then I got distracted by the movements and moments of the late 60s and became an anti-war activist and then a war reporter and an investigative reporter and, and pretty much spent the next 30 years in a sort of schizophrenic state of, of going off to cover wars and epidemics and report on on politics in the military in order to come home and go body surfing or take a dive. And, and it really wasn't until much later that I got to write the uh, my first ocean book, Blue Frontier. And that was also at a critical time in my life. I just lost uh, my life's love until then, and, uh, who was also my dive partner. And uh, after she had passed away, I didn't know quite what to do with myself. I was thinking of going back to war reporting because this was when George Bush was ginning up for the invasion of Iraq, and I knew that war was a good antidote to depression. I'd already gone through that, and I got a call out of the blue from Ralph Nader, who'd read the book, and the last chapter is actually titled Seaweed Rebels, and it talks about kind of these grassroots folks who have solutions, but how they haven't scaled up to to where they need to be, and he asked me if anybody was organizing them. If, If not, he was willing to give me some initial support to start a nonprofit, and I I thought about it. I thought, well, probably we're always going to have wars. We may not always have uh, healthy living reefs or uh, or marine wildlife. And and after many years in which I dedicated at least part of my reporting time to reporting on the declining state of the ocean, I thought maybe I could do something to, uh, you know, to actually uh, engage and uh, help make a difference. Um, plus, I'd inherited the cat. Didn't know what to do with the cat if I went off to war. So I... I, as I say in the book, you well, know. thank cat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We have a the whole booth. She didn't even like getting her paws cat. wet. Well, that's great. But, uh, and of course, years later, you know, when I was covering Katrina, it reminded me, it was, reminded me very much of war zones with, you know, fewer deaths. I think there's 1,600 killed by the time I got down there, but far more extensive destruction. And you, you look at Katrina and a, and a few years later, I, you know, almost, went in with the Coast Guard to see Hurricane Ike and, and the cowling on uh, engine cowling on the helicopter flew off and shrapnel on the tail rotor, and we were very lucky not to crash on that one. And then, of course, Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, devastating the East Coast. And when it hit New York, I was reminded of, of interviewing a NASA scientist, a climatologist in New York back in 2000 for that first book. And she was telling me that, you know, that the one in a century storms, coastal storms are going to become decadal. We're going to see them every 10 years, you know, as sea levels rise, as, as heat in the ocean increases the uh, frequency intensity of, of uh, storm impacts and sea level rise, uh, allow storm surges to go deeper on shore. But I, I remember just, you know, wandering through this sort of hollowed out city when, uh, you know, New Orleans was, you know, had been evacuated and there was just, you know, me and other journalists and, uh, you know, Army troops, National Guard in this city. And all through the city, you'd, you'd see at the eight-foot level this brown line where the, the, the flood water had 
gone and receded. Yeah, it had been that high. Oh my gosh, yeah. And, and it was just, um, you know, it, it was stunning. And, and I traveled along the, the whole Gulf Coast, um, South New Orleans, Plaquemine Parish, uh, you know, was devastated. And then five years later, I came back, met some of the same shrimpers, you know, after... Uh, Katrina, they they moved their families north of the floodgates, but they were continuing to shrimp. And then, you know, five years later in 2010, I returned during the BP disaster, and uh, and the shrimp were all oiled in in Bacteria Bay and uh, and this community, mm-hmm. uh, Indian community that had had 25 families when Katrina struck, and they were down to 10. But the the Mennonite social services were helping them rebuild, and they were hoping to bring families back. And then the devastation of the oil, which was a very unnatural disaster. I, I remember flying over it uh, early in the, in the blowout and spill and seeing a pod of 100 dolphins and a humpback whale trapped and dying in the oil. And just yesterday, Noah put out a report that uh, identified that the, the fact that hundreds of dolphins a year are still dying from the impacts of that spill five years ago, a, a spill that a federal judge ruled was the result of uh, of gross negligence on the part of BP, and and I and I can testify for that because in 2000, when I was riding Blue Frontier, BP took me mm-hmm. out to a couple of their deep water rigs, and on the second one, I asked the rig boss, whose name was actually Bubba, I said, Bubba, what happens if you get a blowout a mile or two down? His response was, well, I guess we'll see when it happens, and 10 years later, we saw... Yeah, we were incapable of doing anything. We just had to watch it all bubbling into the deep water. And I've, you know, I've I've seen right when I moved back to California, there was a, a bunker spill fuel right here in in my uh, marina, and, and to then see it four thousand times bigger in the Gulf of Mexico, it's something I don't yeah. want to see again in my lifetime. And and yet, we're talking about drilling in the Arctic. You know, the history of offshore drilling has been going from one frontier waters to another and you know we went from piers in california to shallow water in the gulf to deep water in the gulf and to go into the ice-strewn arctic ocean where we don't even have uh navigation charts that are that are you know anywhere as good as as standard charts at, at our blue vision summit uh, paul the commandant of the coast guard he pointed out he said this you know that that this is uh, could be a black swan disaster, meaning something at the level of the Titanic. If you have an oil spill in the Arctic, they have no way to clean it up. If you have a a shipwreck in the Arctic, they don't have the SAR, the search and rescue capacity. And and, and so you know what I, what I try to do with my book is talk about how you know sort of the the traumas and changes in my life in the ocean over the last half century and how. Um, even after loss, you can find sort of solace being part and, and a, a purpose in being part of something larger than yourself. I mean, you know, the ocean has always sort of provided me with everything from adrenaline rushes to solace, realizing, you know, large parts of, you know, you're part of this this larger crucible of life on our planet. And, you know, that's my one last love that I'm I'm going to, you know, work to protect um, and I, I think, you know, in, in working to protect the ocean, we also, you know, I wrote one of my books, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. People say, what can I do? I'm just an individual. And, and the answer is each of us and everything we do every day impact the seas around us. And the good news is 
you know, when you educate yourself and when you start doing the right things for the ocean, it turns out to be the right things for you, for your, for your health, for your pocket, both just for your sense of well-being. You know, we get so much out of the ocean in terms of recreation and transportation, trade, energy, protein, just the sense of awe and wonder that, uh, that it makes sense to give something back. Well, that's so important in your title and in my life is that sense of wonder you know, that Rachel Carson talked about her nephew going down and wondering over tide pools and stuff. And, you know, the only, that, that kind of, that wonder continues to surprise us. We continue to wonder, you know, be, be struck by unexpected things in the ocean. And, and that, I think, plays a big role in our overcoming all the heartbreaks that we see, you know, so frequently. And it's only through wonder, I guess, that we're able to arrive at hope. And I, yeah, I mean, every time I go diving, you know, it's like the best available science is creating some of the worst imaginable scenarios for the future. But every time I go diving, I come back optimistic. Every time I go body surfing and a, and a sea lion or a dolphin pops up. And every time I dive at something new, I just, you know, about eight months ago, took my nephew on his first cold water dive down in Monterey Bay. And we're 50 feet down and there's a cormorant dives and is swimming under us, you know, chasing fish, you know, the seabird. It's just, yeah, you know, it's wonder and... and, and we got back and had lunch and, you know, and I ordered Tim the sand dabs and pointed to these little fish that, that we'd seen on the bottom. It's sort of the, the circle of life, you know, and I told him, uh, you know, I'm still willing to eat any fish that has a fighting chance. It's just there aren't as many as there used to be. So, you know, when it's we get like our it. stoke, we, we, you know, give something back. And, uh, you know, that's what I try and do with uh, with the book, with, with the 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 work of Blue Frontier with uh, with all my friends who give me hope, who are you know coming up with amazing solutions to problems that sometimes seem intractable. When people ask me what fish to eat, I say find out what the local fish are and then try to eat the most abundant one, which is probably the least expensive one. Yeah, and and you know eat lower. I mean, last night I went out and eat we had lower you down know, the food chain. Yeah, yeah, we had yeah raw oysters and 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 tasty vegetables. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's uh, some of it's pretty basic. You know, we make it complex, but it's simple. You know, eat moderately. Eat don't eat things that uh, don't have a fighting chance. Don't eat the top predators, the tuna, the shark, or you know the billfish. Yeah. You know, eat the David, stuff. We're, that's, we're uh, out of time, so um, healthy. I I want to I got you know cut you off right there, but um, uh, uh, so what's the takeaway message you want people to take away from this? Um. Each of us can do something, and uh, number one in my 50 ways is go to the beach because we protect what we love. Absolutely. Be connected. David Helbarg from the Blue Frontier, um, dot org, I guess. Uh, thank you very much for Blue taking all the time. And talk- thank you for your work, yeah. Rob. Okay, that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.